0: Well, good morning, uh, brothers and sisters. Today we are starting a short three-week series on the book of Nahum. So I'm just going to turn up the book of Nahum. Uh, now, if you're using a physical Bible, that's quite good. Um, you will find it hard to find because it's very short. Uh, so may I recommend like, you go to the index and look, for the front, look at the contents page, uh, or Look for Habakkuk, and then go backwards a bit, okay? Uh, but uh, if you can turn up the book of Nahum, if you're using your device, then quite easy. Lah. Book of Nahum, and we're going to be looking from chapter 1 today. There is an outline on the order of service that you might have scanned on your way in, uh, or downloaded before you came. Uh, so if you want to see where we're going, the outline is there as well. Right, let me lead us in prayer every begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you speak to us by your spirit through your word. And we pray that as we uh, look at uh, Nahum chapter one this morning, uh, that your spirit would work in our hearts that you will help us to see you more clearly uh, and to love and appreciate you more. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Is God wrathful and avenging? Can you or should you talk about God in that kind of way? Does God actually get angry? And if so, does he lose his temper? Or oh, here's another question Is it right to take revenge? And if it isn't, then what does that mean for God's character? Is he a God of vengeance? Here's another question, does God care when his people are harmed? One more question, when the apocalypse happens, how can I escape? Well, we will see the answers to these questions and more as we begin to look at this ancient book of Nahum. The very first verse in the book tells us that it is an oracle. The word oracle means burden. It's something that's heavy in the prophet's heart or mind and is expressed in a pronouncement. Uh, And the verse also tells us that it is a vision, a a revelation seen by the prophet called Nahum, whose name means comfort. Now at first sight, you might read this prophecy and say, it's not very comforting. It doesn't really go with his name. But I will show you, there are comfort in there for God's people. It's now written in a book or a scroll in which we are reading today. And so it is the oracle, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Some people think Elkosh is a town in southern Judah, but actually we don't really know. But what we do know from the very start is what the book is about. It's there in the first verse an oracle concerning Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria at the time. And Assyria was a mighty nation with a great empire. Right, you can see something about the extent of the empire on the next screen, next, uh, next slide. Uh, we will see, wow, such a big empire. All right? It show you where Nineveh is, uh, on the arrow it's gonna come up. That's Nineveh, and all that colored thing is the empire around them now let me show you jerusalem that's jerusalem do you see that little dot just outside the mighty empire do you think they feel threatened they they, they do uh, notice that most of the promised land has already been incorporated into the empire the assyrians had destroyed the northern kingdom of god's people israel In 722 BC, taking the Israelites off into exile, scattered them among the nations. Then they had ravaged the southern kingdom, Judah, in 701 BC. They were very close to taking Jerusalem when God miraculously saved his people and sent their armies scuttling away. But in Nahum's time, they're still the biggest and most powerful nation and still a terrible threat to Judah. We can date this prophecy of Nahum to somewhere between 663 BC and 612 BC. We know that because in uh, chapter 3, verse 8 to 10, it references an event which was the sacking of, uh, by Assyria of an Egyptian city called the Thebes, and that happened in 663 BC. And the prophecy itself predicts the fall of Nineveh, which happened in 612 BC. Right? So it must have happened between those two times. Okay, one more slide. Next one? Ah, okay. So the prophecy of Nahum is somewhere in between 663 and 612. The other thing we should note about uh, Nineveh was that Nahum is not the only prophet who references her. Uh, The prophet Zephaniah also pronounced destruction at the same time, round about the same time. Uh, But the most famous prophet to preach about Nineveh, anyone remember who that might be? Jonah. Yes, Uh, Jonah lived a century beforehand. Uh, And unlike Nahum, whom we're looking at today, unlike Zephaniah, Jonah didn't just preach about Nineveh, he preached to Nineveh. God sent him to Nineveh to warn them of the destruction to come. And to his own frustration, they actually repented. And God relented from the punishment he had planned for them, he had pity on the people. Everyone else saw Nineveh as a terrible threat, God saw them as a pitiful people who needed forgiveness. But their repentance must have been short-lived. They returned to their evil ways. They did those terrible things to Israel in 722 B.C., tried to do the same thing to Judah 20 years later. And so by the time of Nahum, God is not sending a prophet to them in Nineveh to warn them of the judgment to come. He's telling God's people, Judah, what's going to happen to Nineveh. See, friends, if someone preaches the gospel to you and warns you of the judgment to come, that is a good thing. God hasn't given up on you yet. Your friend who is preaching to you is doing you a favor. God is still giving you a chance. Take it in the right way and repent. Now, the book of Nahum has three chapters. In chapters 2 and 3, we're going to see graphic pictures of Nineveh's destruction. But this first chapter is introductory. And in it, Nahum shows us the character of God in verses 2 to 8, the folly of the Ninevites in verses 9 to 11, and the plan of God in verses 12 to 15. You can see it in your outlines, you can see it on the screen. And we're going to start by looking at God's character. Listen to what Nahum said about God's character in verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Do you notice the repeating words there? Right? Three times in one verse we read that God is avenging. And that is expressed in wrath, mentioned twice, against his enemies. I've got to say that many Christians don't want to think about God as wrathful or avenging. Right? There are many churches where the wrath of God is just not spoken about. Or if it is, it's quickly crossed over in embarrassment. Right? Perhaps it's not seen as good marketing, or perhaps more charitably, people know it's wrong to take revenge and so they don't want to impute something sinful or bad to God. And they know how from their own experience, how Wicked people can be when they're angry, and so they don't want to associate that with God. Understandable, but mistaken. Let's think about vengeance first. Uh, We know from the New Testament that taking revenge is wrong, so how can this passage say that God is vengeful? Uh, Does God change from Old Testament to New Testament? Well, when you look at it carefully, The reason Christians are not to take revenge is not because vengeance is wrong in and of itself. It is because vengeance is God's job, not ours. Romans chapter 12 verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See that? God is the only one who can take revenge because he is the perfectly just judge of all and his wrath will be expressed in perfect justice. When we take revenge, we mess it up, make things worse. We're not allowed to do it. Can't take things into our own hands. Instead, we have to trust God to do his job as judge of the world and God does his job. I'm not talking about the criminal law and all those things. That still has to be lah. They are God's instruments. But in our case, individually, no. God is avenging and wrathful. He will take revenge on his enemies, and he especially avenges his people. And that's exactly the same in the Old Testament and the New. Because the character of God actually doesn't change. God doesn't act in vengeance and wrath right away. Right? Verse 3 says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the greatness of his power means that his slowness to anger is a very good thing, isn't it? The more powerful a bad-tempered person is, the worse damage he can do. If you have a bad temper and you can't control it and you take it out on other people, please go and get some help. Please do that. God is wrathful, but he is not bad-tempered. His anger is real, but it's not like sinful human anger. His anger is deliberately slow and perfectly just. But slowness doesn't mean neglect. Verse 3 continues that he will by no means clear the guilty. At the end of the day, justice will be done and will be seen to have been done. The guilty will experience his wrath, he will take vengeance, he will repay. In other words, he will punish judicially in a retributive kind of way. Every evil that is done, every sin that is committed will be paid for. God will never close one eye to sin and say, He is just and will by no means clear the guilty. And that is a good thing. Justice is important to God. Verses 3 to 6 give us a picture of his power as a divine warrior as he comes in his wrath. Now, this is poetic picture language, huh? uh, not literal, but it's poetry to convey some very powerful truths. Uh, verse 3 speaks of whirlwind and storm, right? You've all seen tornadoes on YouTube, huh? type of whirlwind. They powerfully destroy everything in their path. We've all experienced some pretty powerful storms here in KL. Thunder and lightning, and the felling of trees. And Verse 3 says his way... Or his road is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Right? If you walk through a sandy place, little dust clouds get around your feet uh, as you walk. God is so big, it's like the clouds are those dust thrown up by his feet. And the whirlwind and storm is his road as he walks along. But it's not just powerful because he's big. His word has power. Verse 4, He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Caramel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. Uh, he's so powerful, he just speaks, and the sea and the rivers dry up, everything that needs water, even those lush places that are mentioned there, they just shrivels up and die. Nature is scared of him. The mountains and the hills and the earth, those big, solid things that we think of as permanent, unmovable, uh, they are so scared when he will destroy them that they tremble in fear, right? That's expressed in mighty earthquakes. Verse 5, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. So it's not just nature, but people who are terrified before him. For verse 6, who can stand before his indignation, who can endure the heat of his anger. His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. God is so big, he is so powerful. When he comes in wrath to destroy, there is nothing that can escape him. There is no point fighting him. Now Nahum hasn't even started to talk about Nineveh yet. These are just general truths about the character of God. Truths that are unchanged even today. For the God of Nahum is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that same character expressed in the New Testament. We need to take warning of that. Our friends and family members need to take warning of that. Our world needs to take warning of that. Because the New Testament tells us the final display of God's wrath and vengeance is still to come. God is indeed slow to anger and he's been putting off the day of judgment. 2 Peter 3, 9-10 says the Lord, he, he hasn't come back yet because he is patient not wanting anyone to perish, but that all should be, reach repentance. But he will come. Peter continues by assuring us that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works are done on it will be exposed. Right? God is still big and powerful. He is slow to anger, but he will come in wrath. And when he comes in wrath, there is nothing that can escape him. And the Holy Spirit describes that day in Revelation 6. Uh, the, picture that is, the picture there is, is of kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. Everyone, slave, free, up the, They're hiding in caves and they're among the rocks. And they call to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from God and from Christ. In words that echo Nahum 1, six. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? When the apocalypse happens, when God comes in his wrath, there is nothing that can escape from him. So is there any place of safety when he comes in anger? Is there any hope to survive that day when he comes? Well, Nahum tells us that our only hope is in him. The Lord is big. The Lord is powerful. The Lord is terrifying when He comes in His wrath. But verse 7 says, The Lord is good. He is good. And my friends, what a great relief and a blessed truth to know that the big, powerful God is good. He is not tame, but he is good. And how is his goodness shown? Verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. You cannot take refuge from him. There is no refuge from him. He is too powerful for that. But you can take refuge in Him. And in Him is the only safe place to be on the day when He comes in His wrath. What that looks like for us is very clear in the New Testament. Romans 5 verse 8 says that God showed His love for us, He showed His goodness in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. If we trust in him, we are united with him spiritually. We are in him. Our sin becomes his. His righteousness envelops us, becomes ours. And he has taken the wrath that we deserve for our sins, for us on the cross, fully paid for. And what we are left is with his righteousness, we are in him. And God can say to us in Jesus, you are justified, you are righteous. Verse 9 continues, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, by the death of Jesus for us, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If we are justified, if we are declared innocent, if God will not be angry with us, then when he comes in judgment, we will be safe. Safe in Jesus. Safe from God's wrath. It all comes from being in Christ. By trusting in him. Taking our refuge in him. That's why we can echo Nahum seven: The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. We don't have to worry about the day of God's wrath. We are secure. And we know that he won't forget us. He won't miss us. Verse 7 says, he knows those who take refuge in him. What a wonderful assurance, isn't it? If you're relying on Jesus, God knows you. God knows you. And he will keep you safe when the apocalypse comes. True to his name, Nahum does bring comfort, doesn't he? On the other hand, those who will not take refuge in Jesus will have to face the final judgment on their own. They're outside the place of refuge. And verse 8 applies to them. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and pursue his enemies into darkness. He cannot win against the divine warrior. Now up to this point, Nahum has been telling us about God's character, telling us how that results in judgment of his wrath, salvation for those who take refuge in him. But now in verse 9, he finally applies it to Nineveh. Remember, ancient Nineveh, capital city of Assyria, a a nation that did not take refuge in God. In fact, they plotted against him by plotting against his people. And we see this plotting in verse 9. We see it again in verse 11, which bookends the section, which deals with Nineveh's folly. The prophet says to Nineveh in verse 9, why do you plot against the Lord? And verse 11, from you came one who plotted against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Now it's possibly referring to uh, Sennacherib was the king of Assyria, who attacked, who took the fortified cities of Judah, laid siege to Jerusalem. What I mentioned before, before, before God repelled the Assyrians to send them back. The Assyrians besieged Jerusalem once. God says they won't get a chance to do it again. Verse 9, he will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards, verse 10, as they drink they are consumed like stubble, fully dried. Right, when thorns are entangled, they burn more easily, isn't it? Right, same with stubble or straw that's very dry. Nineveh will drink the cup of God's wrath like an alcoholic drinks wine. They will be fully obliterated. Now notice, my friends, how a Attacking God's people was seen by God as plotting against Him. Do you notice that? God, in His sovereignty, might use His people's enemies to discipline them or punish them for their sins against Him, but those enemies are still responsible for their actions. And in plotting against God's people, they earn God's wrath. And it's still the same today. And when Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus, he said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, Jesus is in heaven, the right hand of God. He's not literally being persecuted by Saul, but Saul is persecuting his people and he takes it personally. God takes it personally when his enemies attack his people. In our New Testament reading, that same Saul, now called Paul, is writing to believers in Thessalonica. He knew what it was like to be persecuted for Christ, and so did they. He writes to encourage them that God will not only rescue them, but he will retaliate on their behalf. He says in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So, When is he going to do that? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What will happen when he does that? Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Friends, make no mistake. God's people may face persecution now. They may face terrible suffering now. God will avenge them. He will repay. We don't have to do anything but trust Him. That too is a word of comfort for God's people. Going back to Nahum, the final section of our passage, verses 12 to 15, uh, contain a warning to Nineveh sandwiched between two promises to Judah. The first promise, in verse 12 to 13, is about release from the Assyrian threat. Verse 12, Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from you, and burst your bonds apart, right? Assyria might seem so big and mighty and threatening now, God has decided it's not going to continue. When Assyria was attacking them, that was part of God's sovereign plan for Judah. But now God's plan for Judah is relief. On the other hand, the message to Nineveh is in verse 14. God's going to make an end to their city, to their reputation, to their gods. Verse 14, the Lord has given commandment about you no more shall your name be, perpetu- be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Friends, no matter how big or powerful cities, or nations, or civilizations, or movements, or religions might seem, God will bring all of them to judgment in the end. He did it in Nineveh. He'll do it for everyone. Incidentally, that is also why big and powerful nations need to be careful about their behavior. Assyria, the superpower of the time, felt very secure in their own country, and they were very happy to go do terrible things overseas. But God would bring them to account in the end. The same thing would happen to them as they did to others. It would have the same for the superpowers of our day who do evil as well. The news that God will come to punish his enemies, save his people, It's good news for Judah. Verse 15, behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Do you notice that it echoes the words of Isaiah 40? Uh, In Isaiah 40, these words spoke about the end of the exile, the time of God is going to come to save his people, which was going to be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. The gospel message here, that good news message, is similar but on a smaller scale. Here is simply that God is going to save his people from Assyria, and he will bring peace by destroying the aggressor. Of course, that is still a foretaste of the bigger salvation to come, isn't it? It's a shadow of the time when God will save his people from sin and death and Satan, and he will bring peace by destroying them all. That bigger peace proclaimed in the bigger gospel would of course be achieved through the death and resurrection and reign and return of the Lord Jesus. In Nahum's time, the response to God's promise to to Judah was that they should honor their side of the covenant. Verse 15 continues, Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And those old covenant feasts look back in Israel's history, remembering how God saved them in the past. And as Israel did that, they should keep their vows, knowing that God would save his promises, God would keep his promises to save them again, this time from Assyria. And instead, Assyria would be destroyed. And never rise again. Friends, we too look back to the past. God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to save and rule his people. As we share in the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, we're going to remember how we've been saved from sin and death and Satan through, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But as we do that, we also look forward to the time when our salvation will be complete when Christ will come again to to save us from this world of sin, to rule over us forever, and on that day, Satan, the ultimate enemy of God's people, will also be utterly cut off. He'll be totally destroyed. Never again will he disturb us. Never again will he accuse us. Never again will he be able to try and turn us against God. He will never hurt us again. That is God's promise. And in light of that, let us do our part, submitting to Jesus as King, seeking to do his will, obeying his commandments, as we look forward to the day when he delivers us from all our enemies. As we've looked at Nahum today, we have seen that God will destroy his enemies and save his people. Happened with Judah and Nineveh. It will happen for us. And we've seen this comes from his own character of justice and love. Nahum has shown us that God is indeed wrathful and avenging. We cannot run away from that. And yet he is good. And he saves those who take refuge in him. And we've seen these two aspects of God's character in Nahum 1 which meet ever so perfectly at the cross. Because God is perfectly just, he couldn't just pardon us without paying that terrible price that he did. And so in his love, bore his own vengeance and wrath in the person of his son for all who put their trust in him. And So my friends, if anyone here is still outside of Christ, can I urge you, Come to Jesus, trust in him as your Lord, because being in Christ is the only way to be safe and secure on the last day. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him but with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and pursue his enemies into darkness. Let's pray. Father, you are perfectly just, avenging and wrathful, slow to anger, but will by no means clear the guilty, the all-powerful judge of the world. That we know that you are good. You're a stronghold, the day of trouble. And you know those who take refuge in you. Thank you for the comfort and assurance that gives to all who are in Christ. And so our prayer is that none of us here today will be destroyed in your wrath. That each one of us would find our refuge in your Son, who bore it in our place. Help us, we pray, to trust in your justice, your wrath, your vengeance and never seek to take revenge ourselves. Help us to be patient in discrimination and persecution, knowing that you've got it in your hands. Help us to rejoice in your promise that the day will come when you finally destroy evil. And the evil one will never be able to disturb us again. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.